You know, there's nothing good going on in the world. That's what uh, was said this week on ESPN 1000 Sports Radio. It's pretty bad when sports radio is saying that nothing good is going on in the world. That's how they, they said there's nothing good going on in the world. The only thing we have to look forward to when it comes to news is the Little League team from Chicago that's make it, made it into the World Series. That's the highlight. And they said everything, everywhere you turn, it's bad news. And even pop culture knows this. It seems that's the way it's been this summer and the way the world's been. Jimmy Fallon, um, on The Tonight Show this week, he did a segment called News Good News. And he said that uh, there's just no news. There's just no good news in the world today. And so they did a segment of what we would like to see happen if there was good news. And they created all these scenes like uh, turtles and strawberries are awesome. And that's the good news of the day. And that people love you. And, every, and, and that there's a new app for bad marriages, but nobody needs it. Because everybody's marriage is perfect. And it was just, we need some good news. Because there really isn't and has not been a lot of good news. And even in the church, we don't know how to handle bad news often. Over a third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. Where people are dealing with the realities of harshness of life. It's the realities of living in a broken world and we don't know how to deal with that sometimes as Christians because we, we come and we think that if it always has to be a rah, rah, yay, you know, and then we come to church and we, we don't feel that way. And we're not sure how to handle that. In our society today, when they've heard all this bad news, there was a time centuries ago when they, the Enlightenment took place where they thought, you know what, everything is getting better. Things are going to get better. We are progressing as, as humans. And then the last century took place, and there was two world wars, and there was even more wars, and now it's getting worse. And so there's a huge cynicism that exists in our culture, and it even creeps up now, I think, in junior high and high school. Kids are going in cynical. When I started out here at the church as the youth pastor in 2000, I would talk to all the high school kids, and they couldn't wait to get out of high school. I can't wait to get out of school. I can't wait to go live my life. And now you talk to most high school kids, even junior high kids, and many of them say, I love it. I don't want to leave school. I had a 22-year-old senior from NIU come to our youth group one time because she enjoyed it. 22 years old. That's not right. Why? Why is that our culture? Because there's a big cynicism in society. Paul Miller says this, cynicism is increasingly the dominant spirit of our age. It's an influence, a tone that permeates our culture. It is so pervasive that at times it feels like a presence. Many of you live this, you know this, you hear this from people. They just walk around, life is not good. They're very cynical about everything because something bad happened to them and they didn't know how to deal with it. They still don't know how to deal with it. And it's just, they just feel this is the way it's going to be. It's an embittered disposition of distrust born out of a painful delusion. We've all been through some of those things. And some of you are here today. In the last two weeks, we talked about prayer on Psalms 4, how to pray at the evening, giving your heart over to God so you can rest in peace. And last week, we looked at Psalm 5, which is all about personal prayer. When you wake up in the morning, you see all the injustice in the world, and you say, God, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray, and we pray, and we pray. But sometimes, it seems like Psalms 10 is our reality. Psalm 10 says this, 
Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in their schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His way prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God is forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that they may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Most of us, and many times, and maybe even this morning, you walk into church and you feel like Psalm 10, verse one. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in time of trouble? We've been talking about being refreshed with the Psalms. And how do we refresh ourselves as we go through life? But this is the reality that many of us face and this us deal with is I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm looking for to follow God's way, but why, O oh Lord, do you stand so far away? Why do you hide yourself and your presence from me? Being refreshed in Scripture never means running from your problems, but it means learning to rely on the faithful one. And that's what Psalm 10 helps us do. This is the reality of lots of people's lives, Psalms 10, 1. And maybe it's not your reality today, but that is the part and the beauty of the Psalms. The Psalms were written as collective worship for the church. Psalm 10 is actually an acrostic where somebody sat down and they, they thought through how to say this, how to read it, and how to speak it so that the church could sing it. So when we gather together, we are collectively understanding and feeling what other people are experiencing, what our own selves are experiencing. Many of you know Pastor Saeed's uh, is in prison in Iraq, and his wife, Nagama, has been traveling around the country, um, speaking in his behalf, speaking at churches, just living an unbelievable testimony to the world in the midst of adversity. But she wrote this in her Facebook page two days ago. She said, Last month has been a hard month emotionally and spiritually. The last two weeks have been especially hard, and at times have felt very dark and unbearable. 
God's presence, which had been so intimate and close to me, has seemed so far off. I had moments of panic of where is God? Why is all of this happening? Saeed's imprisonment, Christian genocides in Iraq, all the hurt and pain in the world and in my life. And questions of how long clouded my mind. I could no longer feel his presence and his assurance. I pressed on. I freed up my time as much as I could and saturated my days with scripture and in time in prayer and in worship. Even when I didn't feel like it. Even when I felt drained and emotionless, yet full of so many emotions. That's her experience that she just felt two days ago and she wrote about. That may be your experience this morning where you're dealing with something where you, why God? Why is this situation happening at work this way? Why is this happening? This is a common question. David is writing about a common question that we all face as Christians. A third of the Psalms are laments. And so it is wrong for us to always assume that we just come in and be happy. How's life? Fine. That's not right. There is lament. There is pain. There are times when we pray. And it seems like God is far away and he's hiding himself in trouble. Where God is not our refuge, it doesn't seem like, and strength, a very present help in trouble. Which is the psalm we looked at this summer. How do we deal with this common question that we all face and that we're all dealing with in some way? Well, first of all, it's not wrong to admit that you're hurting. David, right at the beginning, he doesn't... Lay out this big explanation to God. He doesn't do all the, he doesn't put out any extra things. He just starts it right out. This is how I feel. God, why are you so far away? Why do you not feel close to me? It's not a lack of, it's not a fault of your faith to admit that you are hurting. And it's not a fault of your faith, and it's not wrong to even question in your prayers to God, but not in an accusatory way. That's not what David does here at all. He is a guy coming with looking at all the problems of his life and the life of the kingdom and the people of God. And he's saying, why do you seem so far away? It's not wrong to question, but it is right to remind ourselves that in that time of question, we are to be humble. If you look at the life of Job in the Old Testament, he was a dad who had everything. He had a great wife, Great family, great wealth, great house. His kids liked to hang out together. They enjoyed each other. His retirement was set. Things were good. And then in a day, it was all gone. And Job said, Though the Lord slay me, yet will I bless you. But if you read all of the book of Job, I'm sure if we would have gone to church with Job through that time, and he walked in on a Sunday, there would be tears more than anything else when we saw Job. He wouldn't have walked in and said, hey, how's it going this week? Great. We know that because for a whole week, Job just sat and didn't say anything because he was overwhelmed with the difficulties of where is God. And all the way through the book of Job, Job is dealing with the realities of a difficult life that we all deal with. And he didn't say, let's just rah, 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 pump me up so I can go. He lived and he walked through it. And that's what David 
is doing. So it's not wrong to admit you're hurting. It's not wrong to question. But we got to do those things with a right, humble attitude. Looking at what Job did, where at the end, when, God ta- when Job came and he talked to God, and Job says, what's going on? And God's response to Job was, were you there when I created the mountains? Were you there when I formed the oceans? Were you there at the beginning? Do you know everything, Job? And even as Job asked and he asked and he asked, God never answered Job. Read it. He never answered Job. He never gave Job the answers to his questions. But then at the end of the book of Job, when all of Job's friends who had sinned against him and said, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. At the end, they need forgiveness. They need to get right with God. And God says, go talk to Job. Because Job remained a righteous man. Because Job wept, he cried, but he kept praying and he kept pursuing God in his weakness. That's what David does. So if you're here this morning and your feeling is lament, why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? If this church makes you feel like you have to come in here and pretend that I'm sorry, and we need to repent of that to you. We need to be a people that can come in and say, I am hurting today, but I'm still trusting today. And I'm trying to fight through this by faith. We need to be that kind of people. That's what David did. It's a common question that we all deal with. But we also need to know that for what it says in Hebrews 11.34, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? We don't know what God is doing. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. But that's how David feels. He doesn't know what's going on because he doesn't know what God's going through. It's an absolutely common question. But what's the cause of David's question? Why is he getting all stirred up of this? It's injustice. He's seeing injustice everywhere. So from chapter verse 2 all the way through verse 11 of this psalm, it's all about this, this, this is the way the wicked is. This is how it seems. This is how the world is. And he's surrounded by atheism. But he's not surrounded by people who are not believing that God exists. He's surrounding by functional atheism or practical atheism. He's surrounded by people who, they don't deny theoretically that a God exists. They just don't care that a God exists. And they're living their lives as if they don't care. And David's saying, they're getting away with it. Why are they getting away with it? And he gives some characteristics of these atheists, these practical, these Functional atheists, which are causing David such a problem, and it's also referenced in many of the other psalms. These people that he's dealing with, they're saying that in in all his thoughts, there is no room for God, verse 4. These are how the wicked believe. They believe that there's just no room for God. So what is the practice, or what is the character of functional atheism? The first thing David says is pride, verse 2, in arrogance. And then verses 3, 4, and 6, there's boasting. He says, I'm dealing with people who are filled up with pride. They just want all things for themselves. They're just operating for me, me, me. They're extremely selfish. And these selfish people are also prospering. Look at verses 5 and 6. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high. They're out of sight. 
David's saying, listen, what is going on? These people are bold. They, they don't believe in God. They're, they're acting like God doesn't exist. They don't care about God. They don't care what God says. They're filled with pride. But yet, they got the new car. They got the promotion. They got the nice house. Their marriage seems pretty good. Their kids seem pretty good. It's not fair. Why are they prospering? Because that happens in the real world. That happens in a broken world. People who are against God, who don't care about God, who are filled with great pride, they often prosper. And he says, then their, their speech is just absolutely perverse in verse 7. His mouth is filled with cursings and deceit and oppression is under his tongue. This doesn't have to be just complete profanity, but that's a part of it. But it's just this idea of talking in a perverse way that I can live my life however I want to live my life. That I am the captain of my own soul. That's perverse thinking. That's living as a functional atheist, as if God does not exist. And David is struggling with this. But he also says they're perpetrators of violence. They are people that are going after their weak. The people who are struggling with, they're they're pouncing on them, it says. It's just vicious, the evilness of verses 2 through 11. And David is watching all of this. And he's praying. And he's trying to figure out, why, God, are you allowing this to take place? These practical atheists, they just don't care about you. They're living their lives as if you don't exist. And why does it seem that they're getting away with it? And there are people like that in the world. But before we jump too far on that bandwagon, we have to look back at the list again and say... I've been a person of pride. I've lived my life at times as if God doesn't exist. Not every moment of my life, but there are times throughout the day, isn't there, when we want to put God off to the side as if he doesn't exist. And so we live as functional atheists, like it's okay, I'll just go my way this time. I know what you say, God, about this situation. I know what you believe about it. I know what your word says. I still love you, but I'm just going to be my own God for a while in this situation. Not completely, but just in this situation. That's arrogance. That is pride. That's boastful living. That's wickedness. That's living, even as believers, as functional atheists. We're guilty of those things, aren't we? I am. So we need then also to repent. If you're living your life saying you're a Christian, but there are areas of your life where you're saying, I'm not going to let God have. I'm not going to follow what God says. You may believe God exists. You may even believe Jesus exists, but you're living as a practical, functional atheist. As if what God says does not care. And God's got nothing good to say about that. It's wicked. We need to repent. That we need to have some clear thinking about it. We need to check ourselves. Which is what David does. Look at verse 1. He says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? It's like, you don't, it doesn't even seem like you exist, God, is what he's saying right at the beginning. It doesn't even seem like you're there. And then you look at verse 11. He's talking about the wicked, this atheist, this functional atheist, who people who live their lives as if God doesn't exist, that they can just do whatever they want. They're never going to get away with it. Read the whole psalm. We don't have time to go through every verse. That's how these people feel. And then he says in verse 11, he, he says in his heart, this person who lives that way, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He'll never see it. In many ways, that's the same way that David felt. 
in verse 1. Like, God, you're not even there. And then if the, but he looks at the practical atheist, and the practical atheist says, God, you're not even there. I can do whatever I want. So David needed some clear thinking, and so did we. We need to check ourselves. And David does that, and he starts to change his tone in verse 12 of the psalm. As he's praying to God, as he's pushing through difficult days, as he's trying to weep and cry and walk with God through difficulties, he realizes that, wow, I'm thinking and I'm acting like a functional atheist. And then it dawns on him in verse 12. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see. For you note mischief and vexation. The rest of the psalm is just a confirmation of David's faith. That God does see everything. God is real. He does exist in our lives. And the psalm is to help us Give a confident reorientation about what we think. Too often, as the church in America, in the West, we have all these struggles with our lives, these bad things that happen to them. We don't know what to do with them. We just bury them deep. We show up at church, and we say, how's things going? Great. We get in a small group. How's, what's your biggest need? Oh, you know, things are pretty good. But deep, deep down inside of us, there's a hurt There's a problem that we've not addressed because we don't know what God's going to do with it. We don't want to bring it out. Or we feel that if I brought brought this out and told people the real pain that was in my life, they wouldn't know how to handle it. And so I'm helpless. That's living as a functional atheist. As if God's word isn't true. As if God's people can't work together. It's never going to be perfect. We're never going to do this right. We're messy people. We're broken. But God says we are to live with confident hope. That he does see. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you've been through. And he knows what you're going to go through. And for the people who have recognized that they need God. That they have been proud. That they have been wicked sinners and repented and turned to Jesus. That there is hope for us. The confirmation is that God does see in verse 10. He sees it all. He knows everything that's going on in the world, everything that's going on in your life, every little bit of it. And God collects all the facts. He says, you take account, you note mischief and vexation. So that guy at work that's really ticking you off and is intentionally messing with you, he's not getting away with it. God's watching on Tuesday, and he's taking note of every ounce of injustice that you're facing. He's writing it all down. He's keeping it. He collects the facts. And God hears, it says in verse 17 and 18, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart and you will incline your ear. God hears us. He hears the cry of the fatherless. He hears the cry of the oppressed. He hears the cry. And God will put injustice to an end, it says. There is going to be a day coming when all the wrongs will be made right nobody's getting away with injustice you're not going to get away with it the wicked who are not following god aren't going to getting away with it god's judging it the question is how are you going to get judged by it we understand this we say why does god allow bad things to happen to me 
What's going on? We, we read Psalms 10, and we've got to t- think correctly as Christians, and we've got to change all our if questions to because. A lot of times we spend too much time with if. Well, if God really loved me, he would do this. If, if, if God was really for me, I would be, I would be in this situation. I w- if, 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 if. Instead of we should say, because God hears me. Because God is king. Because God is sovereign. Whatever difficulty I'm going through, he has a plan. He knows what's going on because of who God is. I know that he will get me through. We understand this as parents, don't we? Or grandparents? Or anybody that's taught somebody how to ride a bike? You ever had to help somebody get on, uh, ride a bike? You, you put them on the bike. They think it's a great idea. You think it's a great idea. But the reality is you're putting on a little stable child on something with two wheels. It's going to go fast, and they're going to wipe out. You know, they can get killed. There's all kinds of bad things that can happen for a back, but we still do it. We still put them on their bike. We still let them take off. And what do we do when you're riding with them? At first, you're right with them the whole time. You're, you're holding on to them. They're right next to you. Daddy, don't let go. Daddy, don't let go. Hold on to me. Do you got me? Do you got me? Don't let go. And then there's that moment. When they're looking this way, and what do you do? You let go, and they start to ride. And for the first few minutes, all, every one of our boys did this. Ah! I, thought, I told you not to let go. Where, get over here. But you just keep letting them go because you know that it's going to be good for them. Even if they fall and cut themselves even if they pierce themselves with a stick, or even if they get killed, it's still better to let them know. And you teach them and you go. That's what God does for us. This is our hope, because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. God lets us go. He knows that there are things that are going to cut us. He knows that there are things that are going to pierce us. And he knows that there are things that may even kill us. But the truth is, that Jesus is king. Revelation 11:15 says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever, which means Jesus is king. And because Jesus is king and his kingdom will reign, there was a time when God did not answer his prayer. But God put him on the bike. And when Jesus cried out for help, he didn't respond. He let Jesus be cut. He let Jesus be pierced, and he let Jesus be killed so that all our cuts, all our piercings, and all our killings will not destroy us forever. That is the amazing grace of God. We deserved what we sinned. Jesus didn't deserve it at all, but because Jesus is king, he reigns. So Psalm 10 tells us, press on, keep pressing on. Nagama finished her letter on her Facebook post this way. After all those emotions, she said Thursday, today I felt a breakthrough, a ray of light, the warmth of his presence. It had been there all along, holding me together, wiping away all of my tears, whispering that all his work All this will work out for those who trust in him, that God will be glorified in all of this. 
I have never seen Jesus in a vision or a dream, but his presence in my life and his supernatural peace and joy that covers me is more real to me than if I had touched him in his wounds. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Dear friends, today I felt led to share my struggles so that in your struggles and weariness, you can be encouraged to press on to Jesus. He will not fail you. He honors and blesses you, even though you have not seen him and have not touched him, and you do not feel his presence. But you continue to press on. You continue to trust. You continue to cling to him. He will reveal himself to you in more intimate and deeper ways. Press on. That's the truth of Psalm chapter 10, that even though we feel God's not with us, if we are in Christ, God is always with us. He does hear us, and so we can have confidence in our prayers, confidence in our weeping, confidence in our laments, and in our joys that Jesus is King, and we can press on and press on.